Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? It's up for debate. So you uh, got to both interview and then see Glenn Davis in a play. So tell us about it. So I will say that I haven't seen a play. I saw Hamilton in L.A., which isn't a play to me. It's a musical and it's also a spectacle and like... I don't know. It's and a cultural a, event. Like, yeah. Did you ever see? Wait, I'm sorry to give a little time yeah. out, but there used to be this show on Bravo called Odd Mom Out, no. and I loved it because it was about an Upper East Side woman who like just didn't relate and like clock in that well with mommy culture, which I, I can really. That's like to. you over there. And there's this scene <laughs> where <laughs> she's talking to some other moms or I don't know just other women and they were like um have you seen Hamilton and she (laughs) says no and it precipitates this like very you know heightened dramatic thing where like people's jaws are unhinging (laughs) and saying like you haven't seen Hamilton that's hilarious yeah so it's an event you have to you have to have seen Hamilton yeah so I saw in life, right? In 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 pop culture and in you know whatever. So yeah, exactly. So I saw that, but this was the first play I've seen. Now, to be fair, it's also a spectacle in that the Mark Taper, like the Center Theater Group uh, situation downtown LA, has like six theaters or seven theaters. I had not been to the Mark Taper Theater since literally two thousand and I don't know two, and um, it's gorgeous and quite a deal and. Um, Wow, just the facilities. I mean, I'm so used to shithole storefront theater that I was like, oh, this is like, oh, this is fancy. Okay, so I saw King James, which is a play. It was a two-hander. I didn't know that. It's two people on stage the whole time. And it's Glenn Davis and this other character who's one of the stars on a show that I love called Abbott Elementary, which is hilarious about school. Quinta Brunson. I haven't Um, seen that show, but I heard it. Yes. Oh, you would love it. It's hilarious and just so, so, so well written. Okay. So uh, this guy, Chris Pa something, I'm going to butcher his name so I won't try, is the other character, plays the other character in the play. And I didn't know what to expect. I love basketball. If by basketball you mean uh, the Bulls in the 90s basketball, uh, that's where I stop. You're into um, nostalgia basketball. Yeah. I'm into nostalgia about exactly that specifically relates to a very niche time in history. Okay, in Chicago. So okay, so this is a play about LeBron James, and it's set in Cleveland, and it is um, set like in the I want to say the aughts, and then um, it spans the time I believe of like ten years, maybe a little more. And it's just these two characters. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know shit about the play, which is how I like to go in. But Glenn gave me um, was kind enough to give me comps and um I went with two friends and um I loved it I loved it I at first okay it was so interesting like I've been spending so much time uh doing writing and reading television that like I was like oh this is a play oh 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 this is a different thing it's like super presentational on purpose 
Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So it's not a, um, it's not television, and these are it's li- not mum- mumblecore. It's not mumblecore. It's not. Um, it's not. Uh, they they're there. They can hear us if we say noises and thing, make noises and things. So I was like, oh right, right. The seats were great, and um, uh, you know, it was a lot of white people in the audience. But like, that's who sees theater, right? Like, that's mm-hmm. who sees this kind of theater. I think you know, tickets were probably very expensive. Anyway, so. Um, I loved, okay, so you could tell that they, they had to get warm. First of all, it was closing day. We didn't see the closing show. They're, they're like two show a day kind of people. And, um, so we saw the first show at one and of the last day and the first scene you could tell, like they had, they were like just getting warmed up because that's how live theater is. By the second scene, I was like, oh, these are pros. Oh, these are pros. Meaning... Um, the language moved. Now, look, they've do, done two runs of the show, one in Chicago at Steppenwolf and one here. So they've been the same cast. So they've been working with this material, right? So they, they know what's going on here. But they're just both, like, seamlessly like a basketball game or like any sporting event. Like, their physicality was brilliant. I just was like, oh, these are pros. Oh, okay. There's no – this is not a stiff – because I'm also used to teaching – students right so these are not students of uh, uh, young students these are pros and I was like oh shit okay this is some real top level acting here you know so I really appreciated when in his interview with you he said that doing the play um, expanded his ideas about theater goers since you mentioned yes typically all theater goers are white and older because they have the time and the money and because it's for all of history, it's been made for them. It's been made for that demographic. But he was saying doing this play brought a bunch of people who were not theater people, but who were basketball people who enjoyed it. And and that gave me a thrill. Like, yes, that's what we need. Because the, the whole perpetuation of the cycle of like why people don't um, appreciate or go into theater is because it, they don't get exposed to it, right? You know, at, at a young age, and so that just keeps perpetuating itself. And yes. In order for that to change, you have to you have to sell people on wanting to have more of it. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And so, um, I totally know what you're saying, and I that leads me to this thing of I. So there is this uh, position that opened up for 15 hours a week. Uh, being an artist in residence at San Diego State um, in the theater department to create art with the theater department there, but also with the community at large. And I have this idea, if I get it, I applied. And my idea is to do, because I love monologues, like that's my jam. So like, what if I want to create some kind of show that's like a community-based show where people get to write and perform their own monologues in the community in San Diego? Not just students, but like the store owners owner, the whoever, all different kinds of people. We work on monologues and maybe there's a roving cast of people, um, that like that we do this. So I applied, I don't know, but, but that is my take too, is that unless I involve the community at large, nothing is ever going to change in any, any way, anyway, whether, whether it's theater or fucking, I don't know, you know, who buys uh, what kind of meat at the butcher. If you don't involve the community, there's no, there's no change, right? I have a question. This is a dumb question, but I just realized I don't, I don't know it. Um, do it seems like operas and ballets don't struggle as much 
financially or do they? Yeah, no, I don't think they do. And I think it's literally because it, I could be wrong, but I'm going to st- talk about opera. My limited knowledge of opera is that it's like strictly old white people. So, and it is a class thing and it is a, a legacy thing. And I think like seats are handed down and seats are, so it is a generational wealth kind of a thing. If I'm right, someone's going to be like, oh, that bitch doesn't know what she's talking about. But I think that's what's going on. And no, so they don't struggle right as me. much. Yeah. Right. Yeah, They're yeah. going to struggle when the revolution comes and all the rich white folks drop dead and then there's going to be no audience. But like, I just, I, I think you're right. And I think that, yeah, I have no desire anymore to create uh, art that doesn't somehow involve a community aspect, whether that's the stories are about the community or we involve the community in theater. So I applied for this thing. I don't know. It pays really well. It's two days a week in San Diego. I would do it. It's like a two hour drive. Um, but, be awesome. uh, I hope you yeah, I mean, me too. I saw it on, you know why I saw it? This is really crazy. I was on social media and they were, had a, a lack of applicants and it's specifically for uh, Latino wow. artists. And they had no, and they kept, they were pleas for people to apply. And it's like not, it's not a no money. It's like good money. And I was like, oh, oh I'll apply. Crazy. Yeah, yeah, huh. yeah. So anyway. Yeah, I think we got, I think, you know, what? If, I just read this whole book about the method. Oh, yeah, and yeah. The history of the method. It was interesting. Uh, Lee Kirk is the person who recommended the book to me. And uh, <laughs> as I was reading it, I, there's it, there, it's part one and part two and part one is all about Russia and Stanislavski and the and Meyerhold and all the the early players and then part two is more about like how they integrated in the United States so I texted him part one is the vegetables part two is the dessert he's like yeah totally so because of course you know what's exciting to us is what we know more about the actor's studio and Marlon Brando and all that kind of stuff but um no, I, it just, that led me to think about how when the 60s, you know, in some ways the 60s were great for theater and in other ways they weren't because I think things went so far in the direction of like experimental and avant-garde and I love that stuff personally, but I'm well aware that really mostly people don't love that stuff. I think theater got a bad reputation for just being that. And then there's the whole other like actually really economic reality which is um the the method was a big part in spawning the regional theater movement and at a time when just there was more theater going because there was less film and television there was there was there was less quality uh stuff on film and television as, as there is now um so now it's just this big what 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 stayed uh, what stayed constant is the people who want to make these shows they're not the people who necessarily want to go to these shows because they can't, if they make these shows, they can't afford to, to go to these shows. And it just becomes this like very insular thing. And that's how I feel like the impression is about theater. Like it's just a self-contained, only certain people go, you know, see plays. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that what Glenn said is right on in that anytime we can involve, well, I think other people, the community at large and also the writer of the plays, it does. And, and when people ask me, why don't you act so much? Why are you now focused on writing? It's because I truly believe that if we're going to change the arts, it's going to be from, from the, the creation stage, whether that's devising or writing or however you create the thing, it's going to be from, women 
people of color, othered folks writing it. And so this play was written by a man of color, um, the King James. And you can tell, like, it is, it is, it is not, uh, it is very nuanced. It is very, um, talking about issues, but not like, you know, I, I, I feel like there's this thing that happens and I don't know how to avoid it. And I actually don't judge it. I just watch it happen where two things happen when white folks are writing about race and class, which is either they're writing and they don't know what they're talking about, or they're writing and they're afraid they don't know what they're talking about. So, or they feel like they don't, they shouldn't talk about it. So it's talked about in this really either heavy handed way or like this really bizarre, not like experimental, not talking about the thing way. And I don't know the solution to that other than let's have more writers of color and other people write plays. Exactly. Be- because my amendment to what you just said is there's white people. They all don't know what they're talking about when white people talk about race. Right. Because how could they from the position of privilege? So they're either blissfully unaware of how they don't know and thinking that their opinion is really desired out in the world or they know that they don't know, but they still want to do the thing. They still want to get people, you know, to listen to what they have to say. I mean, you know, not for nothing, but we've had some people on here who've talked about writing stuff about race. And I'm just like, okay, well, I hope you I hope you know what you're doing. Well, I, ho- I hope you know what you're talking about. And my other thing is, like, now what I'm doing is saying, like, okay, well, so I, I want to partner with people that have more... Uh, experience and insight about the thing that I don't have if I'm going to write about a certain thing. That's the way. Who can I collaborate with? Who can I collaborate with? Because I don't, yeah, it's going to be very limited if I'm writing about what I know. It's going to be about like, yeah. you know, dogs and cults and murder and, and weird Latinos who have an experience of being half Latino. It's going to be so niche that nobody gives a fuck. We got to expand our shit. Hey, let me run this by you. Okay, so I'm going to make a real left turn here. Yeah, let's take a left turn. I love a left turn. And I'm going to start by asking you this question. What (gasps) was your dad's relationship to pornography, if you know? Okay. Yeah. No, no, no. Here's my thing. My dad, um, was inappropriate on a lot of levels in terms of like jokes he made to us and stuff. He was really into the Porky's movies. (laughs) (laughs) So it wasn't like I never witnessed hardcore, but it wasn't as hardcore then maybe, or just not accessible, but Porky's was his thing. And then, um, um, and then one time I found a couple of nudie magazines in his, his side table, but my parents, uh, so my dad, I'm not sure the extent. And also the dude died right before the internet real porn boom. So, um, I don't know what he would have gotten into, but I would say that my father was, had a lot of, um, issues and one of them was probably sexually frustrated and, um, I don't know the extent. What about you? Why do you ask and what about you? Well, I ask because I started to watch um, the documentary that came out earlier this year, I think maybe even in January, called The Secrets of Playboy. And it's it's a 12-part series. And for me, it was really 
uh, illuminating because two things. My dad was obsessed with Playboy. He had every Playboy magazine from issue number one. He kept them in. Really? Yeah, he kept them. One of the many things my brother, so-called brother-in-law, absconded with when my dad died. By the way, it was just a vulture fest when my dad died. All these people who I'd never met before coming saying, your dad promised to give me this gun. Your dad promised to give me. Yes, yes, girl. It was so... Oh, that is I mean, disgusting. It was, it was so gross. It was so low. It gross. Was, yeah. <laughs> after that, I was so like, I'm low. never coming back to Sacramento again. But anyway, um, he was really into Playboy, and he was not discreet. He kept them. I mean, so I think his opinion was, like, Playboy is very PG. I think that's what he really thought. But he was also into the triple X stuff, and he had tapes, tons of tapes. And one time when I was really young... Like on a Saturday, I walked in on him and all of his friends watching a porn. Yeah, it was really gross and scary. Actually, really what it was and what it is, I think, for little kids who aren't old enough to really, they certainly haven't had the talk with their parents or whatever. Um, it's just scary. It's like you, because you, what you, what I could have observed then was that they were the way, their vibe you know, they weren't like chatting or talking to each other or just simply watching a movie. It was like a weird, heavy vibe. And I knew that I wasn't supposed to see it. And so that's all it is. It's like as a kid, it's just scary, but it's also exciting and interesting. Right, of course. I remember looking at those magazines and of course I wouldn't have thought about it this way then. But of course, what it really was is this is my understanding of what a woman is supposed to look like. Uh, and this is my understanding of what men like. Oh, right, right, right. right. And I never like bought Playboy or anything like that. But when the reality show came out with the girls next door, it had these three. Oh, yeah. yeah Hugh Hefner type? The babes? The babes. Yeah. The three babes that were his girlfriends. Yes. Who lived in the, and, and, and talk about PG. This is the most PG show like they were portrayed as like a happy little family and he's a kindly old grandpa and the girls are just, uh, but okay. But of course it wasn't that at all. And he was a disgusting, horrible person and a rapist and, and a, and a, um, and a uh, accomplice to other rapes that happened uh, with his knowledge. Bill Cosby was a big fixture at the Playboy mansion. Um, there was a ton of drugs. He gave everybody barbiturates, which they called thigh openers. Yeah, no, it was like horrible, disgusting, disgusting, disgusting. And everybody who appeared in this documentary was either a playmate or worked for the organization. And and two of the three girlfriends who were in that TV show, one of them has written a whole book about it. Her name is Holly Madison. Um no, they described it being the worst time of their life that they felt they were they felt they were in a cult. And when they left, they began to identify him as like the devil. Like it, it's just so in the complete opposite direction. And so I am. I can't describe exactly what it is, but I'm doing some kind of healing by watching this, I'm by just having the truth, as you always say, there's something just so wonderful about the truth. And if you can just get to the bottom of what it is. So what I'm tr- 
think I'm doing is I'm taking it from the unconscious back of my mind, push away scary thoughts place to like, oh, this is what was happening. My dad was just another one of these guys who participated in, in the patriarchy very, very actively. And this is what it did to women. And it wasn't anything good. Yeah. And I think, I think we go for me, I go even deeper and I'm like, not even deeper, but I also, I wonder if we could go to like, this is, this is what it did to me. Like, this is how I was abused by the patriot. Well, or or, I don't even, whatever adjective you want to use affected. I don't, I don't know. But like, for me, I'm like, oh, this is how it impacted me. And this is, and, and realizing at 46 that like, Oh, the things I thought were my fault really weren't my fault. And I'm not, um, I'm not the pro I wasn't the problem. I think I come more and more to that, which is in certain ways, of course I was the problem in my own life, but in certain ways, like I was not the problem in, in the patriarchy. I was not the problem in my parents' marriage. I was not the problem with a a boyfriend who called me ugly and fat. Like that was not my problem, but it was made our problem because that's what society did. And so I know the feeling of watching. So I had a similar thing watching Stranger Things, the new season, where I'm convinced that the Duffer brothers have taken MDMA and are like going on this journey. Is that who who wrote it? Yeah, that's the creators. I haven't seen, I haven't seen any of it's it the this last season I haven't seen the second part of the last season but um it was I was weeping the whole time because I thought oh oh at, children are we are just so um we are just so at the we are at the hands and the mercy of adults that are deeply troubled and deeply flawed and there is no way around that and it is just sort of a thing that happens that you can you can be aware of and heal from but I think what's interesting to me is that those kids are sort of around our age in that it takes place in the 80s and and so I just really really nailed home for me the 80s vibe of Oh, all the things that were being formed, the patriarchy, the, the racism, the classism for me as a kid. Yeah. It just really, I just wept the whole time and like they, they go through these journeys. Yeah. Yeah. It was really powerful to me. And I think the Duffer brothers are our age, right? So they're writing about this stuff and they're also writing about how adults like, um, um, adults are doing the same thing of trying to just be seen and heard. And they're just, we're just so, so ill-equipped. And so they're fighting quote monsters. Same with, I watched it. I watched the new it. Like I'm really obsessed with people fighting demons and monsters. And it's, that's the lesson there too, which is there are two things that go on in the journey for me to adulthood. One is finding community. And the other is looking deep and going on a solo journey of trying to repair the things, how I was damaged growing up. And it's very solo in some ways. You have to do certain parts of that journey on your own. Wow. You just do. 
So you think you said you think they are taking MDMA and doing you're, so you're saying you think they're working through some traumas of their own in this. Oh my god, the show. script okay. is like all about that. Like all wow. you're like whoa, and so I and same and and it in a different way too. And I don't know who made it. You know, it's Stephen King, but like Stephen King, I'm upset. Obs- the reason as I get older, I get more and more into horror, and I think it's because there are literal depictions of people b- battling monsters and. Really, it's a metaphor for battling our inner shit. And it is all about facing your fears. Yeah, yeah. And knowing when well, you can do it as a team and knowing when you got to face it alone. I think in particular, the thing that feels healing to me about this experience is, is as I am watching this documentary, I'm also revisiting certain episodes of that show that I watched from beginning to end when it came out the oh, girls next door. Yes. Yes. And I'm and and I'm like I'll be watching somebody who is now talking about what they're ex- an example is one of the girlfriends that um from the 70s that have had uh would come back as many of them do to the mansion like for parties and Easter and Halloween and stuff like that. One of the women who was interviewed in the documentary, you know, really went deep about all of the ways in which he abused her. She appears in The Girls Next Door, but when you see her, she looks dead. She looks complete, like you can, she, like, you can tell that she's saying to herself, I have to go to this thing because whatever her reasons are, I don't want to be persona non grata, something like that. But I am going to completely leave my body as soon as I enter those gates, right? right? Because she's disassociated completely, and she doesn't. I mean, it's she's older now, obviously, but she looks like a completely different person now that she's contending with this, and she's uh, seventy, you know, almost seventy. So it's never too late. But um, it's yeah, it's just really. Cause what? It, Cause at the end of the day, the thing that's so painful about that part of my family—my dad, my sister, and all that—is it was all so mysterious to me. I never felt like I got to the bottom of what was really going on there. So when I get any type of way of decoding or understanding something, it takes it from this. You know, because humans are always trying to make meaning and make patterns out of things. So it takes it from this sort of inexplicable, why Why does your dad, why does a dad not love their child or love one of their children only? It, it, it just demystifies it a little bit. And I can, by the way, draw a straight line from all of that behavior to my sister's death. I mean, she she was, because she got the worst of it because she lived with him. He had parties where people were just having sex in the kitchen and the living room. And she saw all of that when she was a teenager. So, you know, it can't, it had to have shaped her identity and what, and most particularly what she thought was her value as a woman. It's interesting. Cause I, I mean, what comes forward for me when I hear you say that is like, I wonder if there's a documentary in there, right? My sister, like, kind of like a my sister's looking back at yeah. my sister's story, kind of a thing, because it's like honestly, yeah, the patriarchy did it. Yeah, I hundred percent. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I mean, I like that because it's like yeah. the other thing that is really um, for me challenging about like the reason I was able to like tell my my do my solo show was because my parents were dead, right? So, so when someone is not on the planet, it's a lot 
less tricky to make a documentary. I mean, for a lot of reasons, but also, yeah, I mean, I just think the fallout is less and also the, 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 the healing, it can be more because they're in some ways. Anyway, I don't know. I'm all yeah, for it. Yeah. But, no, yeah. you're, yeah, you're right. No. And you do have to have a little bit of distance. Oh yeah. I mean, I, even though I wasn't connected to my sister for the last almost two decades, I would never have, you know, gone really far out there and, and sort of exposing because I would have had that fear. What of if course. Yeah. And like you don't know you just don't and ultimately ultimately uh, for and I'm I'm assuming it's true for you you don't want to, to hurt someone or ruin their life or like bring up shit they're not ready to look at and cause trouble. Nobody I don't want that and so it's like yeah anyway we have to when people in death people can are sort of safer in some ways, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. To deal with, yes. You, it's like okay, now I'm sure they can't hurt me right. anymore, <laughs> or that that they're not going to hurt themselves, or like I'm not going to be responsible for them hurting themselves, which is which is really sort of how I would feel, you know, like oh god, you know. And it was interesting, like my dad, when I did my first, first, first solo show um, that you saw, I think, um, in Chicago, maybe, um, my dad, they were alive. And, um, my mom threw it in my face later that like, when my dad died, she was like, you know, something, something like, well, he, you made fun of him in that solo show. So you didn't really love him. And I was like, Oh God. Wow. Okay. Yeah. People are nuts. Yeah. People are nuts. I think that it'll be really interesting. Do you want to tell, is it a secret of, are we, ta- are we still recording now? Do you want to cut it off? Yeah, or? we're still recording. Okay. And uh, are you talking about what it's doing? Yeah. Or like, yeah. you're talking about your trip in front of yeah. people. I, you know, actually, that's a really great question. I don't know how that works. I don't either. Um, I think it's different for each. We did not sign an NDA. We signed only just the contract. Well, we could say but... you're coming because your son has a, a, we're coming a job. Because my son has a lead it's a huge job in a movie a huge job like he's in every scene type of situation holy shit and um yeah it's a real mixed bag there's oh, a lot me. going on, on oh shit more than i think we probably have time or ability to talk about right now but um yeah you probably saw when i put on facebook my thing is like i just that was so fascinating that Writing that thing and getting the responses I got was so fascinating. I know. It was a lot of different... It was a mixed bag. Speaking of mixed bag. It was a lot of men explaining to me what I needed to do. (laughs) Um, And it was a lot of not listening at all to the thing that I asked for. Like, not one person (laughs) gave me... Even somebody who... uh, Anyway, I just didn't get any thing that I was asking for, but I got a bunch of unsolicited advice. It was just really interesting. So um, I couldn't use any of that advice. So what I have been focusing on is... Well, why don't you tell us what what the question was? The question was, like, how do you tell somebody who's 15 years old... That you love very much. That you love very much, but that who you know has a less than stellar work <laughs> ethic and who let's face it is like pretty self-centered and pretty um just 
I don't know, like not a person you would expect to be like, believe. I don't know. I mean, maybe you would expect it. I don't know. I, I also have never been on a, on a film set like this where it's five weeks. And Me neither. Everything. Yeah. So, um, so I was just looking like, what could I, sh- what could get him to, and to realize what this really is? And the answer is nothing. He will just have to see it when he gets there. And it may be a big, like, I don't know, blast of cold air in the face to, to say, because I remember my very first job that I had, I came home after one day or maybe one week. And I said, I have to go back every day. I, you know, Gina, my first job was at a bakery and I fucking didn't know how to make change. And so after the first day at work, because I had an old fashioned register, I was sobbing and my parents had to practice with me making change every night after work while I sobbed. It was horrible, but I fucking learned how to make change, my friend. But you learned. And my mom has a saying that she always says, which is everybody grows up at work. And it's really true because it's the one place where it doesn't matter what your baggage is and it doesn't matter. It only matters like, are you doing the thing that you're hired to do right now? Yes or no? If no... Chances are you're going to have a boss who's going to fire you or harshly reprimand you. Correct. And then I, I always it. remember Gina what you said about your job, <laughs> which was when you were temping, and the lady was like, "Could you like be more of a like a self starter?" Self starter. Yeah, I think you need to be a little more of a self starter here. Yeah. I I just loved that so much. I think about it. All I the say time. that to Miles. I say it to Miles all the time. He wants to kill me. But anyway, so yes. yes. So your mother, I, I agree with your mom. We all grow up at work. It is yeah. so true. And the other thing is you can't know till you know. There is not one single thing I can do or say or tell or show my son that's going to be, that's going to make him go, oh, this is what it is. Because he just literally has to do it. And as a result, I'm expecting it's going to be somewhat yes. rocky, well, at least me, at the beginning. Yeah, because, and I think that, Gina, yeah. it's always rocky. So, like, for me, when I go to set, I'm not a lead. I don't even have that much pressure. It's fucking rocky. When I go to set, it's rocky, and I don't even have right. a job, a big job. So, like, I think that, like, if we just go in with the expectation, yeah. like, the shit is going to be rocky because inherently film sets are rocky. Six, uh, You know, kids are rocky. Um, people... People trying to figure out their shit are rocky. The whole thing is rocky. So I think that is going to be rocky. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see how you internally navigate that turbulence. You know what I mean? Yes, that will be interesting. And and I'm also very interested on how he's going to navigate it. Because I have this feeling that by the end of this <laughs> summer, we're either going to be all in on acting or we're going to pick a different path. Yeah. <laughs> Which is good, right? I mean, like, either way, he's going to find out. You both are going to find out information about yourselves. And I and and the, the you're going to have information about the entertainment industry. And you're going to meet some people. And it's going to be it's going to be a lot of information gathering. And also, you know, I have to be honest, like you've talked to the people involved here. They know what they're getting into. They're working with a young, a young, like a teenage first timer who this is the first time with a huge role. There's no, no one has lied to anybody here. Yes. And I have to say big ups to everybody that I've communicated with so far. The producer, the writer and the director um, has been just 
beyond wonderful. Like I, you know, couldn't be happier that this is the environment. Because if it was one of these really oh, big budget God, things, no, we, yeah. Well, I we would, would I would never made it. I would have been like, uh, I'm out. But the other thing that I think that is good is like what I do at daycare for my dog. Now I'm not equating your your kid to my dog, but I am because I don't have a kid. So um, yep. what I say is. Hey, good morning. I'm under no illusions that this is going to go well. So here's my dog. <laughs> right, right. Totally. And she's a real, totally. she could be a real asshole. She might, she nips. Uh, she's got problems. So don't worry about trying to um, pretend that she's a good dog because she's not. And this is going to be real fucking rocky. Have a nice day, everybody. <laughs> Before I got on, I was going to, I was thinking to myself, okay, it's 9 a.m. And I've already managed three crises. One yes. is right before I got in, my daughter called me from her first day of basketball camp and said, she's crying. And she says, it's too hard. I can't do it. You have to come pick me up. And I have to tolerate the my w- thing I hate most in the world, which is when one of my kids is in pain. Yep. And I have enabled people quitting on things. Me too. I am so uncomfortable. Me too. Them being in pain. So I had to talk her off the ledge there. I had to wake my son up and give him a very clear and defined plan for the day and let him know that if he deviates from this plan in any way, there will be consequences because we're big on working on the consequences right now. And my other son waking up late to get to tennis camp and kind of leaving in a big curfew, you know. (laughs) Gina, Gina, you're probably exhausted. It's fucking 9 a.m. It's like not even. Oh, my God. You. So listen, 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 listen. Whatever happens on this set, I think it's going to be it's going to be okay. And to realize that that um, at least on set, like there's going to be a lot of adults that can handle crisis. Like you're not in charge of all the kerfuffle and crises that happen on this set. Thank God they have a whole crew. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is that I realized after I put this question onto Facebook is what I'm really nervous about is me and how I am going to either be able to help or not or, you know, be an instrument of things going well or not or, you know, and and, and, and uh, there's this competing thing, which is, yeah, I want to learn how this goes. I want to understand what this process is for myself, having nothing to do of course. with my son. Yeah. Of course, there's two things, but, and also, and also, um, and and also, it could be like I'm going to leave the door open. Like it could be hilarious and funny and fun at times, and also, it could just be it could be crazy and all the things. And you'll be partially in the woods, which I think is fucking ripe for comedy. I'm stocking up on the bug repellent. The, <laughs> oh yeah, we're we're essentially going camping yes. for, for five weeks. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so should be interesting. If you liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survive Theater School is an undeniable ink production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you!